a lot of people get caught up in looking at a distressed deal and thinking that immediately there's more opportunity to make money. That's not always the case. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I'm pleased and honored to be introducing you to Trevor McGregor. You recognize his name. He's been on the show multiple times. Just search Trevor McGregor, Joe Fairless, and you'll hear his interviews that I did with him, and he has a lot of value during those interviews. Well, he's had a lot of value in my life. For the last five years, I have hired him to be a consultant to help me with my real estate business and just personal stuff too as a life slash business coach. And he's taken my game to a different level. Before I hired him, I had four single family homes. And oh, by the way, I was also single. Fast forward to today, my company controls over $300 million worth of real estate. And I am happily, happily married. Clearly, results are going to vary. But he has helped me in five years do things that I didn't even have on my radar. So I suggest that you speak to Trevor McGregor if you're looking to take your real estate investing business to the next level. If you've had success and are looking to build on that success, then he's your guy. Go to trevormcgregor.com or coachwithtrevor.com. And you'll be able to apply for a conversation with him, coachwithtrevor.com. We used to do a free consultation. We got too many free consultations, and he actually is pretty full with his consulting program, and he's very conscientious about the value that he adds. He wants to add tremendous value, so he's being very selective with the people who he does work with. So go to coachwithtrevor.com and apply to have a conversation with him. And then you two can decide if it makes sense to work together or not and hire him as a consultant. It has impacted my life in a tremendously positive way. Him and his wife have gone to my wedding. Trevor's been to my conference a couple years. And I know him well. And I suggest that you get to know him as well. Coachwithtrevor.com. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. We're doing follow along Friday today. I've got with me Theo Hicks, who is with me on Fridays. How you doing, Theo? I'm doing wonderful, Joe. How you doing today? I'm doing wonderful. A little bit under the weather, but just a tiny, tiny bit. Hopefully nipping that in the bud with some lemon water and wheatgrass and all sorts of other crazy stuff like that. We are going to be talking about the three different business approaches or business plans that you can implement on a apartment community and really a single family home, I guess really any type of real estate venture. I guess apartment communities are top of mind because that's what I invest in. It's one a distressed deal and implementing a business plan that brings a distressed deal from zero occupancy or maybe it's 80% occupancy, but you bring it down to 20% occupancy because the residents weren't screened properly all the way up to stabilization. So that's one. The middle ground value add deal where it's fairly stabilized or is stabilized, meaning it's 85% plus occupied and there are still value-add components to it. That's the business plan that my company does. And then more turnkey, where you don't really do anything to the property. You just buy it and then hold on to it for cash flow. 
So we're going to be talking about which one is better. And we've got a popular debate platform or format for this episode. A lot of people have said they've enjoyed this format. We can thank Grant, our team member, for suggesting it. And you're going to take an approach that I normally would take because just to mix things up a little bit. So how are we going to structure our conversation? So I think for the first debate, I was actually role-playing, but now it's more on the lines of what I'm actually planning on doing and what I want to do. And then you kind of playing devil's advocate for the other, in this case, two strategies. So I'm going to be taking the side of the value add investor. And then as you'll not necessarily be taking the side, but just kind of be playing devil's advocate the other two. So we're not, since value add doesn't completely not go unopposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that just to start, one of the main reasons why I like the value add business approach is because you kind of get the best of both worlds. Obviously you don't get the same magnitude of good from both, but for turnkey, the main pro is that you get a lower risk because the property is already cash flowing. Everything's completely done. So there's not a lot of uh, variables that could go wrong. And because there's a little risk, you also get a more certain return. Because again, since everything's going to be done, you're going to be getting this kind of cash flow throughout the life of the project. And then for the benefit of the distress model is that there's a, that big upside at sale. Because you're buying a property under market value in a sense that is under capacity for some reason or another. And by you forcing that income up or those expenses down, I'm pretty sure for distress would be more along the lines of forcing income up. The NOI increases and the value of the property increases. And so you, that, you get that big chunk of capital at sale. For value add, since there are opportunities to increase the income and decrease the expenses, you will have that at forced appreciation where you'll get that large chunk of cash at sale. But at the same time, since it's stabilized enough at purchase, you're still having some sort of cash flow along the way. And once you're stabilized, then you're going to have a significantly higher cash flow than you would for the turnkey or really the distressed, depending on kind of how you approach the distressed. I'll stop there for now. All right. So yeah, you gave pros for the value add. But one thing you said is that it's the best of both worlds. And what that makes me think of is that it's a watered down version of both of those things. It's a watered down version of a turnkey and it's a watered down version of a distressed. So you're right in the middle. And how many of us like watered down things? Not me. So if we're going to do something, let's do it. If I have a specific strategy or if I have a specific goal, let's say my goal is Capital preservation, I live in California, and I know some people whose scenario this fits. I live in California. My single-family house I purchased 10 years ago. I got a whole lot of equity in the single-family house that can do some damage if I were to use that equity and buy something in the Midwest. I am first and foremost focused on capital preservation. So in this scenario... I would rather have a turnkey property, maybe a triple net lease property, and then make sure that my money is set up and safe. On the flip side, let's say I am looking for some major cash flow in the long run. I don't have any. And so in order to get that major cash flow in the long run, I need to get a chunk of money up front and I need to earn that chunk of money through whatever I do. Well, That's where I look at distressed properties because 
that's going to give me the best value that can be added. And that's going to give me, if I do it right, the best return on my time relative to the money that I make. So I'm going to be looking for distressed deals and the challenge I'm going to have. And as long as we know the challenge that we're going to have, then we can plan to address that proactively is the on the ground team. That's going to be an important part for any three of these, distressed, value add, or turnkey. It's most important for distressed though. So I'm going to make sure, I'm going to spend just as much time focused on finding the deal, or I'm going to spend just as much time focused on finding the team as I am finding the deal. And if I am out of state or out of town, this is going to be increased risk factor for me, but I'm going to know going into it, that's the case. So I'm going to make sure that I structure my contracts accordingly with the general contractor and make sure he or she has experience and referrals that I speak to. And I also have a team member on the ground who checks in on the project if I'm not able to check in on the project, just to make sure that the general contractor's work that they are sending me is actually being done. Because I've heard horror stories, I've interviewed people who have pictures submitted to them by the general contractor and their pictures of a nice renovated bathroom but lo and behold, it's a bathroom from a different property. They find out. So I'm going to make sure that I have a third party verifying it if I'm not able to. But assuming that I do, and I'm able to turn a property around from 20% occupied to now 90% occupied, that's where most of the money's made. So why wouldn't I want to make most of the money? For my personal opinion, the reason why I avoid distress is because of the high number of variables that are involved and the number of things that can go wrong. Like Obviously, if I buy a property and I go in with the proper team, that still doesn't address the fact that I could break into the walls or I, we could go to the HVAC or we could go under the roof and find some insane problem that is going to cost us a ton of money. And I know just from my minor experience dealing with smaller properties... I couldn't imagine how much that would add up on a big apartment building if I've already seen what's happened on the properties I have now. Now, of course, that could be reduced through proper due diligence, which I would have to do for distressed. But I still think that there's that additional layer of things that could go wrong for distressed properties. And I just personally don't have the personality that'd be able to handle that or really like that. Whereas from my understanding for value add, yes, you're still renovating things, but these larger items are already completed or at least not in complete disarray. And another thing too, and again, I guess, again, I'm not necessarily dealing with this, but I guess it also depend on if the reason this is stressed is because of the tenant situation. Are there actually other tenants that you could find? Is that just what the area actually is? Which I guess you could technically do up front. But this for me personally, the added layer of risk that comes from the number of variables and having to address these major issues, I'm just not comfortable with that. I'm glad you're not comfortable because then that opens up opportunities for other people to do it. And take on that higher level of risk to receive the higher level of returns. There is one more thing too. Again, from my understanding of the distressed model is that I would be not afraid, obviously, but I'd be curious to see how much harder it is to attract investors to those kind of deals. Because of course you're promising them, not promising them, but offering them the potential for a large return at sale. But from their perspective, there's definitely a lot more risk because they're not really getting a return along the way because 
there is no money coming in from the property at all, is you have to find people that are comfortable not making money at first. And I would imagine that the type of person that would do that would have more experience as a passive investor. Maybe they invest in a few turnkey or value-add apartments and are willing to take the extra level of, of risk on the, the stress model. So I, I mean, I'd be curious to see what your thoughts are on that, but I would just imagine it'd be harder to attract investors for a distressed deal. I imagine it would be too. Stepping outside of our role play back and forth, I've never done a distressed deal. So I don't know. I haven't spoken to investors about distressed deals. I imagine with a distressed deal, you will not only get investors who are more experienced in investing in deals, but also investors who have the higher risk threshold and higher, larger amounts of capital to invest because if you invest in a distressed deal, you've got to really be okay with losing your money. I guess that's with any investment, but there's a lot more risk involved with the distressed deal. So one thing that we didn't talk about is financing that's available or not available with think about that. value add versus distressed. So now I'll act more like myself as a value add investor and not pretend that I'm a distressed or turnkey investor because I'm not. I'm a value add investor. Financing, we get Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac loans for the most part on our deals with value add deals. Whereas a distressed deal, that's going to be a challenge. Some deals, they don't even have financials. They are written on a napkin by the owner whose family has owned it for 20, 30, 50 years. And in order to get financing, you're either going to have to get a local bank or a private lender, or maybe a national bridge lender. It just depends on the deal. But the terms are going to be less favorable than value add or a turnkey property because there's more risk. But again, there's more potential return with that type of distressed deal. However, a lot of people get caught up in looking at a distressed deal and thinking that immediately there's more opportunity to make money. That's not always the case. My suggestion to evaluating a distressed deal is to take a look at the projected returns and the amount of time that's involved, not only time to turn it around, but also your time, and then compare that to a value-add deal that you can also purchase instead of this first deal, and then see what are the projected returns and what's the time, both your time and the time involved in the project. And look at them side by side, because sometimes the distressed deal most times that have a higher projected returns, but compared to a value add deal, those higher projected returns on the distressed deal aren't justified based on the additional risk that is involved. And that's ultimately why I don't do distressed deals because we can get really good returns on a value add stabilized property with lower risk compared to a distressed deal where we could get higher returns, but there's a greater risk. And in our business where we bring in investor capital, one distressed deal that doesn't turn out correctly could ruin our reputation or severely hurt our reputation across our entire company's name. And that is a risk that we are not ready to undertake 
And because we focus on value-add deals, we can hit doubles, triples, and sometimes a home run. And I'd much rather be on base more frequently than striking out and everyone talking about that. Yeah, I didn't think about the financials or the reputation aspect of it too. I know we haven't really talked about turnkey much, but you've got to mention that if your goal is to just kind of have a steady stream of cash flow, you've got a big chunk of capital that you're willing to invest. That's why I think turnkey is great. Like from my perspective, I imagine, you know, 20, 30 years from now, it's assuming I, I continue to, do, I start to do and continue to do you know, value add deals. I would stop doing those and just kind of do the turnkey just because there is lower risk. But I was kind of also thinking about it, about you know, what is another downside of turnkey. And since there is really no opportunity to force appreciation, the value the property is at when you buy it is kind of going to be what the value is unless the market fluctuates. If the market goes up or the market improves and the cap rates go down, then you know, great. But <laughs> if it goes the other direction, then you're kind of screwed. You'll have the equity that you've invested from the investors. But, but still, I think that's also a risk. I think turnkey sounds like they're more risky than a bad market because the value is basically tied directly to the market itself. Yeah, turnkey is not an investment to bring investors into unless those investors are looking to beat inflation and that's it. It's a personal investment for someone who wants to keep their money safe. But if you have to hit a return to your investors, good luck with turnkey. It's not going to work out for you very well. With a personal investment, my first three homes that I have today, still today, they were turnkey. For sure, they're turnkey. And I bought in Dallas-Fort Worth, so I've lucked out. I'll just call it it's luck. I'm from Fort Worth, so if I wasn't from Fort Worth, I wouldn't have bought there. So it's luck. Those homes have doubled, at least doubled in value from when I purchased them. The rents, they've gone up a couple hundred bucks for each of the properties, and they cash flow pretty well until someone moves out or something else happens and then wipes away all the profits for the year. The important part if we buy a turnkey property for ourselves, is that one, it cash flows. And two, we don't care what happens to the market because we know we're going to hold on to it for the long run. Because my homes could be worth half of what I bought them for and I'd be a little upset about it and I'd have to really think twice about doing that again. But if I'm not looking to sell it, who cares? Who cares what they're worth? As long as they're cash flowing, doesn't matter what they're worth. Only reason why it would matter is if I were to do a line of credit on one of those homes and take out the equity, then that's where it takes into account the value of it. But if we're not tapping into the equity and the cash flow and it's a long-term hold, it doesn't matter what the properties are worth. That's a good point. I didn't think about that. Kind of one more thing that I want to talk about in regards to value. And I guess this kind of applies to stress too, but creative aspect behind it because you you can have two value-add investors that are looking at the exact same deal have a completely different business plan based off of their level of creativity and experience and things like that that's why i think value can be very fun you kind of get to do what distressed owners get to do by making improvements without that higher level of risk and so i kind of look for i enjoy that aspect of it kind of looking at a profit and loss statement and be like all right like, like where's an opportunity to add value? And, you know, since there's so many line items out there and there's so many different moving parts in an apartment, there's a bunch of different options. And if you're able to identify value add opportunities better than someone else, then you can buy that deal at a higher price than they can because you're able to increase the value after buying it. And so it can make you as a person more competitive 
against uh, other apartment syndicators or apartment investors who are trying to buy the same property. Absolutely. There's an art and a science to underwriting. It's not just a cookie cutter experience. And it certainly is unique to the operator. I can tell you, I was in Dallas last Friday. I was in Dallas for a day. I flew in Friday morning, flew out Saturday. And I was looking at a property, actually the property that the off-market deal I mentioned last week. I was looking at that property and I was looking at some other properties too in DFW. And one of the deals I saw is across the street from a property I was looking at. And I was talking to the broker about it. And he said that they are value-add investors, but they take a different approach than we do. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you guys, talking about my company, Ashcroft Capital, you guys renovate the interiors and increase the rent, make it a better community, do some exterior stuff too. What this group does, they actually don't do upgrades to add their value. Instead, they beat up the expenses and they just run that thing on a shoestring budget so that when they market it, they have all of the units that can be renovated and they position it as a selling point because they haven't touched any of the units. So another value-add investor can come in and buy it. And they have at least one 200-plus unit property, so I guess it's working or has worked for them in the past, or we're about to see if it works. I don't like that approach because as a buyer, if I were to be presented their property and the story is there's 100% that I can renovate, okay, great. That's what we want to see. Well, ideally, there's about 5% that have already been renovated. That way, the business model's proven, and we can go in and renovate the remaining 95%. But 100% is really good too. However, if their expenses are lower than what our expenses are, it's likely they're going to want some sort of purchase price based on how they're operating it. But the reality, we would never operate it with their expenses as low as they have them. So we won't be able to use their expenses because we underwrite to how we operate the property. And that's how we determine the value of the property that we're going to buy, not what they are doing. It's what we're doing. So I doubt we'd be able to come to an agreement with them on price. Maybe, maybe the value add upside is so great that it would more than compensate for how low they run their property. Mm -hmm. But I bring this up because there's many ways we can add value and different groups approach the same challenge different ways. And I agree with you that that's what makes it a lot of fun because you're only limited by your own limited thinking. There's a lot of different opportunities to add value. That kind of reminds me of when properties are priced based off of the broker's pro forma. They go, right. yeah, we're going to operate it. Our expenses are going to be 35% of our income or something like that. And you're just like, well, I'm underwriting and I'm getting 60%. Like, it's like, I was kind of thinking the exact same thing. It'd be tough to sell the property at that price point because if no one else knows how to do what you're doing, then they're not going to be able to reduce the expenses that much. Yep. So. I agree. Awesome. As we discussed, that's why I personally would choose the value-add business model. And for you, you already obviously choose it. So um, yep. it's like value-add wins. <laughs> and value-add had an unfair advantage coming into our conversation, that's for sure. Uh, but there are reasons for doing the other two. Also, if you're good swinging a hammer and you like that stuff, then distressed opportunities would be more likely to 
be successful for you. So cool. Let's keep rolling. All right. So I've got some fun developments on my end. So as I mentioned, I sent out a direct mailer through a real estate agent at no cost to me. Everything is air quotes because obviously I'll have to pay to get a commission at the sale. I've got a really good response rate. I don't know exactly what it is, but this coming Monday, so in six days from now, or if you're listening to this on Friday, on Monday, my property manager and my agent are going to look at four properties that the owners are interested in selling. So I sent to three different neighborhoods and they're all in the exact same neighborhood. So I didn't get much of a response rate from the other two neighborhoods, which I didn't really expect. But I kind of just threw it on there just in case I could sneak in a, you know, a really good deal. It was interesting because as the each deal comes in, like, oh, this is a great deal. And the next one comes like, oh, this one's even better. And so, like, <laughs> each one that comes in, it's just better and better. And we just got one. And I'm, it sounds too good to be true. But the owner must have gotten a direct mailing piece very recently from another investor who was not able to buy the property until May. And they don't have an actual contract or anything. I think it might've been like a verbal agreement or a, yeah, we'll see if I still have it. But they had no intention of selling the property until they received this direct mailer. And then they got our direct mailer and said, well, if you can buy it sooner than this person, like, I don't really care who I sell it to. I just like, if I can sell it sooner, I'll sell it to you. And so it's a four unit that's bringing in $2,800 a month in rent. 28? Yeah. <laughs> they want to sell it for 150000 Those are pretty good numbers. What type of area? It's right by the three fourplexes that I own. So it's not on the same street. So it's in Cincinnati. Oh, yeah. It's all either Cincinnati. It's actually in... in Oh, I thought you were doing direct mail to Florida, to Tampa people. No, I don't know anything about that market yet. Oh, you're doing direct mail to Cincinnati people. I'm with you. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, so it's in Pleasant Ridge. And I just know Cincinnati so well. And I have a team on the ground right now that I figured it'd make more sense since we're ready to buy a property now to do it there. And then, you know, maybe if I learn the Tampa Bay market a little bit more, I can buy here. But just based off of my first meetup group and the conversation I had with people, they're talking about like duplexes that are going for like three, four dollars $400,000, which is right. insane. But so we're going to look at all four of those properties. Two of them are kind of like, man, we're going to look at them just because these other ones fall through. But there's one that's actually on the same street, like four houses down from the three fourplexes I own right now. It's all two beds. I can't remember exactly what they're getting in rent, but they want as much as we paid for the other four plexes. So this will probably be actually be a better deal because not only is it all two beds, whereas our other ones are a half, two, half, one bed. Sure. But if it's in better condition than the ones that we bought, that would be even better. I'm pretty sure it's under rented though. Like I'm pretty sure all the two bedroom rents are below what we're getting for our two bedroom rents right now. As before the increase that we're doing right now. So I'm really, really excited about that on Monday. And hopefully by next fall on Friday, we have a property under contract. Wow. I love the play-by-play every week here in this. Congrats on that. And hopefully you can get that 2800 in rent property locked up too. Yeah. Fortunately, my property manager owns properties in Pleasant Ridge. So he understands what he needs to look at. Like obviously, I told him what to look at, but he knows to look at the boilers, look at the plumbing, look at the roofs. And they're all brick houses, so you don't have to worry about siding or anything. But those are kind of the three main things. The windows, a little bit. It kind of just depends on how crappy they are. I know that a lot of those properties have those really old windows, mm-hmm. but those aren't as important as uh, having heat in Cincinnati in the winter. So they don't even have to be like perfectly fine as long as they're not as bad as they were at this other property. At least if I know up front that, hey, I'm going to spend 10 grand. I guess technically it'd be three grand because that 10 grand was across three properties. But it's overall, I'm really excited about that 150. Okay, property. Because I think if we get that one, then we'll be able to buy two of these properties. Yeah. Well, looking forward to updates. That's for sure. 
And also looking forward to hearing the on the ground people's thoughts whenever after they look at them. I also mentioned that we're in the process of raising the rents on our three fourplexes. And so we've got one bedroom units that are currently renting for between 580 and 600. And we're going to raise the rents to 685. And then for the two bedrooms, they're renting around. Well, I'm sorry. So for one of the one bedrooms, it's renting at 650. So that's why we are raising it that high. And then for the two beds, they're currently all rented between 750 and 775. I believe we're raising those to 815. Hmm. But I think we just sent out the letters to all the one bedrooms and right away we hear word back that one person's going to sign a lease at 685. So proof of concept is there. Yep. That's really exciting. It's going to pump up the rents at this property like a lot. When do you plan on doing a refinance to get the equity out that you've created? I haven't talked to my broker because I don't know if they're going to value the property based off of the rents. This is, this is oh, right. a residential, right. but something that we'll probably start thinking about towards the end of this year, once we've owned it for a year and kind of just see what we get for an appraisal. I mean, appraisal isn't that expensive because I mean, again, the good thing is that it'll be across three properties. Mm-hmm. So all three properties should be operating at the same income and kind of similar the expenses are close enough. And it'd be nice if we were able to pull out some equity or find some sort of a local bank will look at the income and do a line of credit on it or, or something like that. Cause you've increased the equity a lot without having to put in much money because they were so un- under rented. Yeah. Or get one loan from a commercial lender across a portfolio. That's something we could, we could totally do. It's just interest rates on our loans right now are so right. low yeah, that yeah. It'd, be, it'd go up like 2%. Right. And then the last thing I'm meeting with, with someone I met down here in, in Tampa, we're getting dinner on Thursday to discuss potentially partnering up on our first, both of our first apartment syndications. Wow. That's something I'm also very, very excited about. That's great. So a lot going on in the real estate world. And again, it's just, it's really exciting because it's kind of dormant for a while. (laughs) Now things are starting to pick up again. Um, It makes for an entertaining podcast. So you keep doing what you're doing. That way we're engaged. How about that? (laughs) Perfect. There you go. (laughs) You lose money, you make money. You know what? If you lose money, it'll be even more entertaining. So maybe do a a lose money deal. That way we can hear from you. You guys can see me cry on here. Yeah, exactly. Reality TV going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for my stuff, I already mentioned I went to Dallas, Fort Worth last week and visited some properties, one of them being the off-market deal that we are getting under contract in the next week, week and a half. We are also putting together the investment package for that for our investors. I'll be sending that out in about a week and a half or so. We're dragging our feet a little bit intentionally on sending it to our investors because one, it's not under contract yet, but two, we have an opportunity at two other deals in a very close proximity to the off-market deal that we're buying. And we'll know about if we get awarded one or both of those additional deals in the next week and a half or so. And if we do, then we'll package it together into one offering. And if we don't, then that's fine too. We'll just have this one deal that we'll send out. Mm. So there's still a little bit of cart before the horse type thing going on with the deal we have been awarded and the two that we're looking at and seriously considering. So that's where we're at and just peek behind the curtain on that. From a personal standpoint, I think I've mentioned before that I volunteer for hospice Mm -hmm. and my patient 
last week passed away. And that was something that was, I guess it wasn't a surprise, but it kind of was because last time I actually went, I brought Colleen and he was very animated and we were wheeling him around in the hospice center and he's talking about all the artwork. He loved art. So I thought it would be appropriate to just mention a couple things I'd learned from my time with him. One, to honor him, but two, this podcast is all about everyone who listens and helping us do better in our journey together. And so one thing I learned is how important it is to be present in the moment. I am addicted to checking email on my phone. I'll admit it. I have an addiction to checking email and responding very, very quickly to emails on my phone. And as a result, I am on my phone or it's close by me 24-7. It really is. And what I've realized with him and just in general is the importance of putting that aside and being present in the moment with whoever you're with. And in particular, making eye contact with people. And when I started putting more of an emphasis on making eye contact, not just people who I'm engaged with, but people who I come across every day at the airport or at the restaurant or wherever. And by really looking into their eyes, you can see where they're coming from more so than if you don't. And you can connect with people more. And I can tell you personally, if I'm having a rough day, I work from home. It's the shortest commute ever from my bedroom to my office. When I'm working from home and Colleen's here with me, if I have a rough day and I don't make eye contact as much with Colleen, I notice a different level of connection than when I do. And that's just with people too. If I make eye contact with them more and I'm present in the moment, then it just get more out of life. And that really is important. So that's one lesson I learned. And the other one is that it's certainly a lot easier. Well, before I say this, we all have different ways of giving and contributing. And what I found, because I've contributed both my money and my time towards things, and I continue to do that, what I found is it's a lot easier to contribute money than it is time. It's a lot easier for me to say my thoughts and prayers are with you than actually being with them. And I think it's important that we have a mixture of giving back both time and money throughout our time on earth. And different stages of life that we're in will dictate which one is more than the other. Because sometimes we just don't have the time and sometimes we don't have the money. But I think it's important to always have some percentage of both of those categories in our life when we're giving back. Because it is a more fulfilling experience and it grounded me more after my time with this gentleman. And I'll continue to do it. I'll continue to work with other hospice patients. And selfishly, I get a lot out of it because I get to experience life with them towards their end. But also I learn a lot from it. And it's something that when we do things like that, it's a win-win scenario. So those are a couple things I learned from that. Yeah. And that second part about how obviously to give back in general, but then that percentage uh, something that I heard that I resonated with me was something Scott Adams said about like the perfect life arc. And so everyone kind of starts off life and they're 100% selfish, like when they're a baby, because they have to be, because they can't do anything. They have nothing to give. 
Mm-hmm. And then as kind of time goes on, you're still dependent on your parents. And then you go to college, you're still dependent. And then you kind of graduate and you had to do your own thing. And then eventually you have like your family and so you had to give back that way. But eventually your goal is to be to the point where the art kind of goes from increasing selfishness down to more giving to the point that towards the end of your life, you basically give away everything that you have to somebody. And so I, I really like that because if you think about it, obviously I agree that it is very important to get back you no know, time and money, a combination of both, but especially more in our day and age. And I, I can't remember what the guy's or company's name was, but if I remember it, I'll post it in the comments section. But he was kind of talking about how if you actually donate money, like donate money to the Africa, for example, as you have a, has a more positive effect than you spending all that money to actually go over to Africa and like volunteer for a couple of days. And as you kind of progress through life, you make more and more money. And so what Scott Adams was kind of saying was that if you actually are selfishly making a bunch of money at first, and then you kind of your mindset changes to wanting to, to give that money away, you kind of have to be selfish to actually make that money in the first place to be able to be altruistic to give it away, I guess is what my point is. And so that's kind of how you progress through life. The average person, obviously, because some people won't inherit a bunch of money or mm-hmm. they'll win the lottery or whatever. But for the average person, from his perspective, he thinks the best way to give back is to basically spend the first half of your life accumulating wisdom and money and then spend the last half of your life working on giving that money away, giving your wisdom away. And then at the end of it all is when you have the most selfless act of all, which is giving all of your money away, whether it be to your children or some charity. Or For him, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a, a charity because I don't think he has any kids, but I wanted to share that. And then the, the second part, a little humor, when we were talking about the eye contact with Colin, I totally agree. Because whenever I'm having like an argument with my wife, I can always tell I just don't want to look at her. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, if it, but then when I do, we connect again and then that tension goes away and we're back to normal. So I just mm-hmm. thought that was kind of funny when you said that. And w- one thing to note on the money thing, it was an interview with Tim Ferriss where this guy He's a super genius and they made a show, I think on CBS about him and his company because they solve big world problems that are others thought were unsolvable. I forget the guy's name, MIT guy, I think. Yeah, that's the guy I'm talking about too. Yeah, we, got it. We, we always forget his name. We've mentioned him two or three times. We should figure that out. We'll post in the show notes his name and the link to Tim Ferriss' episode with him. But anyway, he talked about Bill Gates versus Mother Teresa who made a bigger impact. And he argues that Bill Gates did because he spent the majority of his life accumulating wealth and then he gave it away, maybe along the way, but he's given away a lot more money. And he says that that amount of money that he's giving away greatly exceeds what Mother mm-hmm. Teresa did, who wasn't focused on money and was just connecting with those giving back. We've talked about this before, but I now have just another thing to mention about it. I don't know if I agree with that because it depends on how the impact is being evaluated. Certainly more money can go towards buying more stuff, more support, more food, more supplies, whatever is required, more building wells to have people drink water, that sort of thing. But what it doesn't take into account is the emotional impact Mother Teresa had on the people she touched and connected with directly and the ripple effect that then had with other people. Because just like when you're passing someone and you smile at them, if that's the only smile they see for the day and they then have a different mood and then they go home and then they have a different approach because they're just in a better mood, there's a immeasurable ripple effect that 
no one can really calculate. Mm -hmm. So I would just say I generally in my logical brain agrees with the assessment that Bill Gates did have more impact. When I think about it from a more of emotional and immeasurable standpoint, I think you could make a case also that Mother Teresa had just as much. But all right, well, let's move on. The guy's name is Will McCaskill. Thank you for that, Will McCaskill. I'll remember that forever. Uh, and again, he's been <laughs> bears. And then the charity website that he recommends is called givewell.org. Cool. G-I-V-E-W-E-L-L-E.org. All righty. So make sure you guys check out the Best Ever Show community. You can get that by going to bestevercommunity.com. The next post we're going to create from that community is going to be addressing all of the problems or challenges that people said they were facing in regards to scaling an already existing business or kind of just getting started in real estate in general. Responses were things like tracking passive investors, finding deals in an expensive market, avoiding the shiny object syndrome, which we can all fall for. So we're going to take those answers and kind of formulate some responses to kind of push you guys in the right direction to overcome those challenges. And then lastly, make sure you guys subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Uh, if you're listening to Facebook Live right now, make sure you like the Facebook page. Uh, we're also, we also post videos on YouTube, the best ever show on YouTube. If you Google, if you uh, search that, you'll find it. Subscribe to that. But for the iTunes in particular, make sure you leave a review for the opportunity to be the review of the week. This week, we've got Tom Burkhard, who said the greatest of all time. And his comment was, holy crap. This really is the greatest real estate podcast of all time. Joe is inspiring, modest, and a remarkable interviewer with an inherent ability to ask the questions of his guests that I want to ask for clarity. Not only do I learn something from each episode, I come away motivated and pumped up to keep progressing in this real estate investing journey. Theo is equally as inspiring as a co-host on Follow Along Fridays. I appreciate and learn from hearing about his journey, the ups and downs, and his desire to keep learning and doing the work needed. Keep up the great work. P.S. I can't wait to be a guest on the podcast. Oh, there's the angle. Okay. <laughs> no, Tom, <laughs> thank you so much for that review. And Theo, what do you have to say to Tom? Because he mentioned you just as much as me. I really appreciate it. I'm glad my ups and my downs are very inspiring to people. <laughs> and I totally understand because it is very good to hear about mistakes because you know real estate is not all rainbows and sunshine. That's right. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for spending time with us. We know your time is valuable. So we our approach is to think about all the things we say as it relates to you and helping you along your journey as a real estate investor in your entrepreneurial endeavors. Have a wonderful day. Have a best ever day. And we'll talk to you tomorrow. If you want to hire the guy who I hire to help me with my real estate investing business, then go to coachwithtrevor.com. That's coachwithtrevor.com. Running your real estate investments as a business is an important ingredient to your success. Pillars of Wealth Creation Podcast will help you get there. Host Todd Dexheimer interviews successful entrepreneurs to discover how to build financial freedom with a focus on business and real estate. Check out pillarsofwealthcreation.com and subscribe today.